Section 15 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. Kerner Commission Report. Section 15, Chapter 1. Profiles of Disorder, Detroit, Part 3. In two areas, one consisting of a triangle formed by Mack, Gratiot, and East Grand Boulevard, the other surrounding Southeastern High School, firing began shortly after 10 p.m. and continued for several hours. In the first of the areas, a 22-year-old Negro complained that he had been shot at by snipers. Later, a half-dozen civilians and one National Guardsman were wounded by shots of undetermined origin. Henry Denson, a passenger in a car, was shot and killed when the vehicle's driver, either by accident or intent, failed to heed a warning to halt at a National Guard roadblock. Similar incidents occurred in the vicinity of Southeastern High School, one of the National Guard staging areas. As early as 10.20 p.m., the area was reported to be under sniper fire. Around midnight, there were two incidents, the sequence of which remains in doubt. Shortly before midnight, Ronald Powell, who lived three blocks east of the high school, and whose wife was, momentarily, expecting a baby, asked the four friends with whom he had been spending the evening to take him home. He, together with Edward Blackshear, Charles Glover, and John Leroy, climbed into Charles Dunson's station wagon for the short drive. Some of the five may have been drinking, but none was intoxicated. To the north of the high school, they were halted at a National Guard roadblock and told they would have to detour around the school and a fire station at Mack and St. Jean Streets because of the firing that had been occurring. Following orders, they took a circuitous route and approached Powell's home from the south. On Lycast Street, between Charlevoix and Goethe, they saw a jeep sitting at a curb. Believing it to be another roadblock, they slowed down. Simultaneously, a shot rang out. A National Guardsman fell, hit in the ankle. Other National Guardsmen at the scene thought the shot had come from the station wagon. Shot after shot was directed against the vehicle, at least 17 of them finding their mark. All five occupants were injured, John Leroy fatally. At approximately the same time, firemen, police, and National Guardsmen at the corner of Mack and St. Jean Streets, two and a half blocks away, again came under fire from what they believed were rooftop snipers to the southeast, the direction of Charlevoix and Lycast. The police and guardsmen responded with a hail of fire. When the shooting ceased, Carl Smith a young firefighter lay dead. An autopsy determined that the shot had been fired at street level, 
and according to police, probably had come from the southeast. At 4 a.m., when paratroopers, under the command of Colonel A. R. Bowling, arrived at the high school, the area was so dark and still that the colonel thought, at first, that he had come to the wrong place. Investigating, he discovered National Guard troops, claiming they were pinned down by sniper fire, crouched behind the walls of the darkened building. The colonel immediately ordered all of the lights in the building turned on and his troops to show themselves as conspicuously as possible. In the apartment house across the street, nearly every window had been shot out, and the walls were pockmarked with bullet holes. The colonel went into the building and began talking to the residents, many of whom had spent the night huddled on the floor. He reassured them no more shots would be fired. According to Lieutenant General Throckmorton and Colonel Bowling, the city at this time was saturated with fear. The National Guardsmen were afraid, the residents were afraid, and the police were afraid. Numerous persons, the majority of them Negroes, were being injured by gunshots of undetermined origin. The general and his staff felt that the major task of the troops was to reduce the fear and restore an air of normalcy. In order to accomplish this, every effort was made to establish contact and rapport between the troops and the residents. Troopers, 20% of whom were Negro, began helping to clean up the streets, collect garbage, and trace persons who had disappeared in the confusion. Residents in the neighborhoods responded with soup and sandwiches for the troops. In areas where the National Guard tried to establish rapport with the citizens, there was a similar response. Within hours after the arrival of the paratroops, the area occupied by them was the quietest in the city, bearing out General Throckmorton's view that the key to quelling a disorder is to saturate an area with calm, determined, and hardened professional soldiers. Loaded weapons, he believes, are unnecessary. Troopers had strict orders not to fire unless they could see the specific person at whom they were aiming. Mass fire was forbidden. During five days in the city, 2,700 army troops expended only 201 rounds of ammunition, almost all during the first few hours, after which even stricter fire discipline was enforced. In contrast, New Jersey National Guardsmen and state police expended 13,326 rounds of ammunition in three days in Newark. Hundreds of reports of sniper fire, most of them false, continued to pour into police headquarters. The Army logged only ten. No paratrooper was injured by a gunshot. Only one person was hit by a shot fired by a trooper. He was a young Negro who was killed when he ran into the line of fire as a trooper, aiding police in a raid on an apartment aimed at a person believed to be a sniper. General Throckmorton ordered the weapons of all military personnel unloaded, 
but either the order failed to reach many National Guardsmen or else it was disobeyed. Even as the general was requesting the city to relight the streets, guardsmen continued shooting out the lights, and there were reports of dozens of shots being fired to dispatch one light. At one such location, as guardsmen were shooting out the street lights, a radio newscaster reported himself to be pinned down by sniper fire. On the same day that the general was attempting to restore normalcy by ordering street barricades taken down, guardsmen on one street were not only, in broad daylight, ordering people off the street, but off their porches and away from the windows. Two persons who failed to respond to the order quickly enough were shot, one of them fatally. The general himself reported an incident of a guardsman firing across the bow of an automobile that was approaching a roadblock. As in Los Angeles two years earlier, roadblocks that were ill-lighted and ill-defined, often consisting of no more than a trash barrel or a similar object with guardsmen standing nearby, proved a continuous hazard to motorists. At one such roadblock, National Guard Sergeant Larry Post, standing in the street, was caught in a sudden crossfire as his fellow guardsmen opened up on a vehicle. He was the only soldier killed in the riot. With persons of every description arming themselves and guns being fired accidentally or on the vaguest pretext all over the city, it became more and more impossible to tell who was shooting at whom. Some firemen began carrying guns. One accidentally shot and wounded a fellow fireman. Another injured himself. The chaos of a riot and the difficulties faced by police officers are demonstrated by an incident that occurred at 2 a.m. Tuesday. A unit of 12 officers received a call to guard firemen from snipers. When they arrived at the corner of Vicksburg and Linwood in the 12th Street area, the intersection was well lighted by the flames completely enveloping one building. Sniper fire was directed at the officers from an alley to the north, and gun flashes were observed in two buildings. As the officers advanced on the two buildings, patrolman Johnny Hamilton fired several rounds from his machine gun. Thereupon, the officers were suddenly subjected to fire from a new direction, the east. Hamilton, struck by four bullets, fell, critically injured, in the intersection. As two officers ran to his aid, they too were hit. By this time, other units of the Detroit Police Department, State Police, and National Guard had arrived on the scene, and the area was covered with a hail of gunfire. In the confusion, the snipers who had initiated the shooting escaped. At 9.15 p.m., Tuesday, July 25th, 38-year-old Jack Sidenor, a Negro, came home drunk. Taking out his pistol, he fired one shot into an alley. A few minutes later, the police arrived. As his common-law wife took refuge in a closet, Sidenor waited, gun in hand, 
while the police forced open the door. Patrolman Roger Poik, the first to enter, was shot by Sidnor. Although critically injured, the officer managed to get off six shots in return. Police within the building and on the street then poured a hail of fire into the apartment. When the shooting ceased, Sidnor's body, riddled by the gunfire, was found lying on the ground outside a window. Nearby, a state police officer and a Negro youth were struck and seriously injured by stray bullets. As in other cases where the origin of the shots was not immediately determinable, police reported them as shot by sniper. Reports of heavy sniper fire poured into police headquarters from the two blocks surrounding the apartment house where the battle with Jack Sidnor had taken place. National Guard troops with two tanks were dispatched to help flush out the snipers. Shots continued to be heard throughout the neighborhood. At approximately midnight, there were discrepancies as to the precise time. A machine gunner on a tank, startled by several shots, asked the assistant gunner where the shots were coming from. The assistant gunner pointed toward a flash in the window of an apartment house, from which there had been earlier reports of sniping. The machine gunner opened fire. As the slugs ripped through the window and walls of the apartment, they nearly severed the arm of 21-year-old Valerie Hood. Her four-year-old niece, Tanya Blanding, toppled dead, a fifty caliber bullet hole in her chest. A few seconds earlier, 19-year-old Bill Hood, standing in the window, had lighted a cigarette. Down the street, a bystander was critically injured by a stray bullet. Simultaneously, the John C. Lodge Freeway, two blocks away, was reported to be under sniper fire. Tanks and National Guard troops were sent to investigate. At the Harlan House Motel, ten blocks from where Tanya Blanding had died a short time earlier, Mrs. Helen Hall, a 51-year-old white businesswoman, opened the drapes of the fourth-floor hall window. Calling out to other guests, she exclaimed, Look at the tanks! She died seconds later, as bullets began to slam into the building. As the firing ceased, a 19-year-old Marine, carrying a Springfield rifle, burst into the building. When, accidentally, he pushed the rifle barrel through a window, firing commenced anew. A police investigation showed that the Marine, who had just decided to help out the law enforcement personnel, was not involved in the death of Mrs. Hall. R. R., a white 27-year-old coin dealer, was the owner of an expensive three-story house on L Street, an integrated middle-class neighborhood. In May of 1966, he and his wife and child had moved to New York and had rented the house to two young men. After several months, he had begun to have problems with his tenants. On one occasion, he reported to his attorney that he had been threatened by them. In March of 1967, R.R. R. instituted eviction proceedings. 
These were still pending when the riot broke out. Concerned about the house, R. R. decided to fly out to Detroit. When he arrived at the house on Wednesday, July 26th, he discovered the tenants were not at home. He then called his attorney, who advised him to take physical possession of the house and, for legal purposes, to take witnesses along. Together with his 17-year-old brother and another white youth, R. R. went to the house, entered, and began changing the locks on the doors. For protection, they brought a twenty-two caliber rifle, which R. R.'s brother took into the cellar and fired into a pillow in order to test it. Shortly after 8 p.m., R. R. called his attorney to advise him that the tenants had returned, and he had refused to admit them. Thereupon, R. R. alleged the tenants had threatened to obtain the help of the National Guard. The attorney relates that he was not particularly concerned. He told R. R. that if the National Guard did appear, he should have the officer in charge call him the attorney. At approximately the same time, the National Guard claims it received information to the effect that several men had evicted the legal occupants of the house and intended to start sniping after dark. A National Guard column was dispatched to the scene. Shortly after 9 p.m., in the half-light of dusk, the column of approximately 30 men surrounded the house. A tank took position on a lawn across the street. The captain commanding the column placed in front of the house an explosive device similar to a firecracker. After setting this off, in order to draw the attention of the occupants to the presence of the column, he called for them to come out of the house. No attempt was made to verify the truth or falsehood of the allegation regarding snipers. When the captain received no reply from the house, he began counting to ten. As he was counting, he said he heard a shot, the origin of which he could not determine. A few seconds later, he heard another shot and saw a fire streak coming from an upstairs window. He thereupon gave the order to fire. According to the three young men, they were on the second floor of the house and completely bewildered by the barrage of fire that was unleashed against it. As hundreds of bullets crashed through the first and second story windows and ricocheted off the walls, they dashed to the third floor. Protected by a large chimney, they huddled in a closet until, during a lull in the firing, they were able to wave an item of clothing out of the window as a sign of surrender. They were arrested as snipers. The firing from rifles and machine guns had been so intense that in a period of a few minutes it inflicted an estimated $10,000 worth of damage. One of a pair of stone columns was nearly shot in half. End of section 15